Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema, directors, genres, actors, or franchises. It doesn't matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month, we're starting off a new series. That's right, we're doing horror comedies for the whole month of October. Because it's finally October. We're here, the most epic month of the year. It's finally back. Yes. I'm in full form. It is, and uh, Becky... Pumpkin spice is in the air. So basic with the pumpkin spice. It's a beautiful time. But yeah, so Becky is curating this entire month, so she gets to pick every single movie we watch. Woohoo! Yes, we're all so, so excited, but the first movie we're watching this month is going to be... It's a movie that's not talked about often. I know this is your first time watching it. Mm -hmm. It's been around in my life for a little bit now. Uh, We're talking about Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944. Yeah, this movie stars Cary Grant. It is also directed by Frank Capra. Who's directed many, many epic films. uh, Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life, It Happened One Night. Like, S-tier classical Hollywood director Frank Capra. Um, But yeah, Arsenic and Old Lace, I've heard of this movie. From me a bunch of times. Well, from like theater kids, honestly, because this was... Originally a a play. Well, yeah, it was originally a play. And I remember in high school, this was like an old standard. Like every high school in the district did a a rendition of Arsenic and Old Lace once Mm -hmm. every like... Once every year, right? Like, my high school did one, then the other high school did one the next year, and so on and so forth. I wasn't in theater, so I don't know if mine ever did. Oh, probably. this Because this was, like, one of those plays that you can get, like, a bunch of teenagers to do it because it has, like, a bunch of different parts in it. You didn't have to come up with parts <laughs> to fill it out like other plays. It's comedy. It takes place basically... In one location. Yeah, which is perfect for a play. Mm-hmm. But that's how I knew it, but I had never, like, seen it. I knew vaguely what it was about. Like, oh, I thought it was like a murder mystery. That's what I thought mm-hmm. it was. I didn't realize it was like a screwball black comedy. With murder. With a, well, yeah. <laughs> with a lot of murder. Like, like lots of it. But yeah, like, going into this movie, I really didn't know what to expect. I mm-hmm. saw Cary Grant was in it, so... I went in with the Cary Grant kind of framework, and this almost works against type for Cary Grant a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that. But yeah, I was really taken aback by it. This movie is actually like really surprising to me how much I liked it. Wow, okay. Because I didn't ask Dean his opinion before this. I wanted to be surprised. I'm like, ooh, he might have hated this, and then this is going to be an awkward conversation. Oh, like all the movies I recommend to you, and you're like, God, you suck. False, Dean. False. I survived an entire month of David Lynch for you. And I ended up liking some of the movies. Yes, you did, which I'm I'm so proud of you for. So Thank proud. You. Thank you. Love, you. you love good films. Um, but yeah. Like this movie. Yeah, this is a pretty good movie. But what's your kind of background going into Arsenic and Old Lace? Is this another one of those watch it every year, old standard, don't remember the first time you saw it? Definitely watch it every year. Uh, I watched the Criterion version that you got me, so it was the 4K restored. So that was very nice. Thank you again for that. Hey, get your uh, Criterion's on sale. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> but when is the next sale? Uh, November, I think. Or he- wait, we're in October. So, so yeah, next month. Next yeah. month. There we go. Okay, cool. I don't know what day it is. We, we really should be sponsored. <laughs> Dean knows these sales like the back of his hand. But yeah, this is one that I watch every year. Uh, I watched this for the first time in high school. This was the same time that my mom was like showing me the Marx Brothers and other classic films. 
And I think this was my first Cary Grant movie. Oh, this was the one that launched your love affair of Cary Grant? Yes, this is the one that lit the flame. Okay, because it is like hilarious how much you're like, so Cary Grant is my uh, masculine ideal. Because you I mean, love the, Cary the, Grant. The man is stunning. <laughs> I do not get that. Because I like look at Cary Grant, I'm like, oh, he's like a charming looking man but i don't get like heartthrob from cary grant well i mean our types are very different you know i'm into cary grant uh james dean marlon brando and you're into like malcolm mcdowell uh <laughs> anthony hopkins I, i'm i'm more into like women but yeah those two like definitely could get some hey you're the one that said you know malcolm mcdowell was a beautiful young man I mean, he's he's got those like we. I don't it, get it's it. The it's the eyes. It's the eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So Arsenic and Old Lace. So yeah, this is a Cary Grant movie. This is also Frank Capra. Your background of Capra, because this he also did. You know, Happens One Night, which I love. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Good movie. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I'm coming around on it. Have you really? You don't love uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a thing where, you know, I used to watch it a lot when I was a kid. I was like, we have to watch it because, you know, it's Christmas time. And I was like, okay, all right, all right. And now that I'm getting older, it's like, okay, you know, I, I can really appreciate it now. Hmm. I, I didn't have the response that you did where you had to go hug Randy because it just moved you so much. I Well, because I had never seen it before and I watched it as like a grown ass man. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, this movie just hits fucking different. All right. But, you know, I'm... Clarence, Clarence. I love a good Jimmy Stewart movie, but you know we're getting a little bit of that background in because Arsenic and Old Lace. I guess like before we get into like the the plot beat mm-hmm. by beat here, going into this knowing it's a Frank Capra movie, I expected a lot more sentimentality, oh, no. a lot more like like you know heartwarming stuff because that's Capra. Like that is mm-hmm. Capra is like all American, we can get it done, you know, like, oh, the downtrodden guy's gonna rise up against this. Like, that is literally the Capra-esque quality. But the man can do comedy, too. Yeah, he can do comedy. He did It Happens One yeah. Night. He's, he basically invented the screwball comedy, and this is, like, that, like, fleeting era before screwball comedies got pushed all the way out of the market. Yeah, this isn't the same uh, realm as The Awful Truth with Cary Grant, which you loved. I did, I did like that movie, but... Awful Truth was like what thirty five? Yeah, and this is this is forty four. This is a decade after. Yeah, but this was also filmed a lot earlier and had to be pushed back because of the war. Yeah, I read that. I guess this was shot in forty one, mm-hmm. and then they had to like hold off for again for the war effort, which was kind of weird to hear. Yeah, because it was released for some of the troops. Mm -hmm. So the troops, you know, the lucky ones that got to see this, got to see this movie almost, you know, five years before it was initially released to the general public. I'm wondering why they held it back. Because it's like, oh, for the war. And I'm like, well, like what what does that mean was it like oh this if we if we released it it would have given off like state secrets was it just like the studio didn't want to release it when there wasn't enough audience or or what no i think i read somewhere i don't know if it was capra was you know enlisted oh so, yeah well capra did go overseas and he so filmed I, like um battles and stuff so i think it was a thing where he couldn't be here for it. So it was kind of like, well, we'll just wait till you come back and then we'll do like the promotional stuff and we'll release the film. Mm, I, yeah, I guess it is difficult for them to do the whole like premiere for everything for an A-list director, actor. Because it's not like wartime. now where it's, you know, it's just the premiere here and maybe a few other big countries. I mean, now it's like, you know, they go on a whole 
press tour, a junket, mm. and it's just, you know, they're gone for like a good six months. Yeah, I guess it, it is a different era of release schedule for those kind of movies. But the whole thing that I wanted to get across is this does not feel like a Frank Capra movie mm-hmm. in the sense that it is a lot darker. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more of a like out and out like comedy yeah there's not there's romance involved but that's not really the point of the movie no you're focused in on the murders yeah and the other thing is there's a lot of stuff in here where i'm like how did this get past a fucking censor board and there were issues with the censor board because they were like you know this kind of play on with you know they want to go on their honeymoon and you know they're in love with each other we can't be having that and it's very minimal because we have dead bodies you know basically up to our ears in this movie. Yes, that is that is one of the first things that I guess, you know, spoiler alert, there's like 13 or 14 dead people in this movie. There's 13 in the basement. Yeah, there's 13 bodies in the basement. But, you know, that for that's like the the preamble for everything. Let's get into like I guess the beat by beat of what's going on in this movie cuz it opens with a riot, a oh. literal riot. Oh yeah, you know, a, a day at the baseball stadium. Yeah. Which it's the so, Yankees and the Dodgers are playing, which serves no purpose to the plot other than ah, Brooklyn, the, the on Halloween. Look at these fucking plebeians fighting over a baseball because it never comes back up again, it, it, except for the very end where uh, one of the ants says, You know, oh, everything used to be calm around here until the Dodgers won the pennant, and then all shit, you know, hit the fan. I, but I, I just like that. Go whole, Dodgers. I just like that whole scene is literally a setup for a throwaway line 90 minutes later in this movie. It'd be like that sometimes. I know. It's just so weird. Like that is some weird like writing because that's literally the first thing we see in the movie. Yeah. Is right at the baseball stadium. And then we cut to City uh, Hall. Yeah. City Hall. And uh, there's a courthouse marriage with. The great bachelor Mortimer Brewster and his uh, waiting fiance Elaine. And he wants to keep it under wraps for some reason. Because he's a writer and he's very much, you know, anti-marriage. It's, you know, oh, you know, I write these books about why men shouldn't, you know, get tied down and he, have a family. He was uh, um, he was the Andrew Tate of his day. Yes. <laughs> so it's this thing where, you know, he's kind of doing this on the down low because... Hey, I have this uh, reputation to be, you know, I'm the bachelor. I'm the dude that doesn't get myself tied to, you know, a wife and kids. And he's like, no, I, f- I found the one. And I do want to be tied down and have, you know, children and that happy life. But he's like, I can't let people know that yet. Yeah. I've got a book coming out soon. It's it's also the thing where it's like we get to meet like this is the first time we get to see Cary Grant and the Cary Grant pitch that he's he's throwing right and now. And looking awesome in that suit and the hat and the sunglasses. You get it. You love Cary Grant. I do. But this is the first time we get to see him and like I've seen a few a few good Cary Grant movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen probably like the famous ones, uh, mm-hmm. North by Northwest, Bring a Baby, Awful Truth. I've I've seen those. And usually his mode is elegant buffoon. Mm-hmm. Like he's always he looks like somebody who could play like James Bond, but he's kind of a doofus, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, good natured, but like he can mug for the camera. In this, it's all mugging. He is going hard in the paint in like the um the double take faces and the shocked look in the. And that's why um, this is the exasperation. His, this is his least favorite of his films. Really? Yeah, because he didn't like that this was 
more or less who his character was. You know, we're falling out of chairs. We're breaking things. We, we need to really use our facial expressions to express how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's such a great film. And he does such a great part in it that it's like, I feel like it's coming down a little too harsh on it. I mean, I can see what he's getting at because it. this is... It is the same kind of Cary Grant performance we get with a lot of his other great works, but he's turned up to 11 in this. Yeah. Like with something like Awful Truth, right? Mm -hmm. He's still playing a general romantic lead, Mm -hmm. but he's a little bit of a doofus or a little bit of a boom. He's using in, you know, the the physical comedy. Yeah. He's really good at at physical comedy and like this fast talk humor, like in a lot of the Howard Hawks. I'll bring up Baby's perfect example. Yeah. But in this, it's almost like he's dropping the whole sense of, Ah, uh, look how look how good looking I am. Don't you know how good looking I am? It's like, so guys, I'm gonna do my best Jack Black right now and try and make you all laugh. He's going like full clown mode, which I kind of love. Mm-hmm. This might actually be my favorite Cary Grant performance. Interesting, interesting. But we're we're gonna get more into that once we get farther into the movie. Hey, because, uh, um, just saying, you know, just like the great Humphrey Bogart. He thought Casablanca was a waste of his time, and it's one of his best performances, one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. It's it's also a thing where Humphrey Bogart cut his teeth on different roles. Like, he cut his teeth playing gangsters and detectives. He didn't cut his teeth playing romantic leads, and I think that's probably why that performance stands out so much is because it's so different from everything that came before it. And Warner Brothers also considered him for the role of Mortimer. Oh, oh, I know the one person who they considered for this that would have been, would have created a completely different movie. And that's Bob Hope. Yeah. Which, okay, I I don't know your thoughts on Bob Hope. I like Bob Hope. Okay, because I've seen him in like, what is it, Road to Morocco Mm -hmm. and like a lot of those Road 2 movies with Bing Crosby. And he's funny. He's, you know, solid, but it it astounds me that that man lived to like the early 2000s and he was still like hitting the stage every month, coming up with new material. Oh, yeah, you know, out there with the troops, you know, with USO and going and, you know, entertaining people. Oh, yeah, he was a performer all the way till the end. Yeah, but it's one of those things where, you know, you see his shtick in, like, in, like, 95, and it's, like, the same shtick he was putting on in 55. Yeah. In 35. And it's one of those things I mean, when you got your act down, you know... You commit to the act. Yeah, and I think if they cast Bob Hope in this, I think the comedy becomes much different. Because mm-hmm. Bob Hope doesn't mug. He He's playing like the um, smarter-than-the-room wise-ass who gets in way over his head. Mm-hmm. At least that's like the vibe I get out of his comedy. But um, yeah, I, I think Cara Grant is like the only person they could have got for this. Absolutely. I mean, he's the perfect choice. He has just so many different character or so many different elements to his character, even though he is doing a lot of physicality in it. Yeah, because if you get Bogart for this, I don't think you can get Bogart to go as broad as Cary Grant. I think it would probably lean more towards a darker, if, if, you when know, they... darker kind of, you know, comedy where it's little bit of comedy and just you know really a mystery when it starts looking like a noir movie and mm-hmm. you see humphrey bogart there you're like i so we're in like the maltese falcon right yeah but with, which and, i love yeah but if you put somebody like bob hope in this then you're like oh this is a parody i'm waiting for bob hope to break the fourth wall and kind of you know nudge yeah. nudge at the camera carrie grant like you can take this seriously as a drama that's in seriously as a comedy it's it's a very interesting line he's walking here mm-hmm. but that's scene one that he appears in yes but after that we get 
to meet the Brewster sisters. Once, um, what is it, Detective or Police Officer Riley is, or what is it, O'Reilly or o- or O'Hara? O'Hara and Riley. Yeah, O'Hara and Riley, you know, because Irish detectives in Brooklyn, you know. They're walking the streets over at the spooky neighborhood and they meet the Brewster sisters, you know, Mortimer's aunts. And they're like, oh, they're such sweet old ladies. Oh, they're taking in the poor and the downtrodden. Oh, how nice they are. And we get to meet the haunted house where there's a laboratory and there's a basement and yeah, there's I mean, and Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, who doesn't have the uh, the Panama Canal in their basement? And also Uncle Teddy. Yes. Did you like Teddy Roosevelt? I was very confused at first because when he walked out, I'm like, why does he look like Teddy Roosevelt? And then he started speaking and I'm like, why does he sound like Teddy Roosevelt? And they started calling him Colonel and then they started calling him Teddy. And I'm like, oh, okay, Teddy Roosevelt's in this movie. And then they explain, no, he's just crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But did you like, you know, Charge? Uh, yes what is it uh, yeah every time yeah every time he goes up the stairs he yells charge because the stairs are san juan king san juan king hill or whatever and i'm like what the fuck <laughs> that, that's one of those things where at first at, when they're at the courthouse okay this is a screwball comedy this yeah. is the setup or actually this is the resolution of a screwball comedy is yeah, they get married we're not getting the meat cute yeah we're not getting the meat cute they, mortimer and elaine have finished their screwball comedy and this is the epilogue now, what we're seeing here is a cartoon playing out. We're at the Adams family's, like, cousin's house right now. Again, one of my favorites. I'm well aware. But that's the thing, because this house, the Brewster sisters, the aunts, this is very much, okay, Halloween aesthetic, because it looks and feels like a haunted house. Mm-hmm. And, and it's taking place on Halloween. Yes, it's taking place on Halloween, and it's... It's very much a um a nice like aesthetic vibe they're going mm-hmm. for. And I kind of am just taken aback once I see Teddy fucking Roosevelt there. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so this so I don't need to have any pretext in this nope. taking it so seriously at all. No. So your thoughts on, on Mr. Roosevelt. Oh, I absolutely love Teddy. I remember when my mom bought the DVD because it was one of those uh, Turner Classic, like you get the four films, four different films. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, you can't watch this without me. And I'm like, why? She's like, you'll know when you see it. And I'm like, okay. So we're sitting down, we're having dinner or lunch and we're watching the movie. And we meet Teddy and I'm like, okay, that's weird. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, but all right, whatever. And then he takes off for the charge. I choked on whatever I was drinking because it just caught me off guard. But the fact that they kept with the the shtick the entire film, every time he went up the stairs, he would forget. He'd get halfway down or up the stairs and be like, oh, no, I forgot to charge. Yeah. And he would go and reset, do the whole charge. And when he slams the door at the top of the stairs, the clock would break and it'd spin around. Mm-hmm. They have to, like, reset it. But they're so used to it. It's like, oh, OK, I know what time it is. Let me set the, you know, the hands back. OK, we're good. It. I love Teddy. It is one of those things where it's such a weird gag that it almost works because it's so weird. Where it's so, like, out of nowhere, so, like, cartoony that I'm like, what? Okay, okay, you're you're pit- you're you're playing a game that I'm I'm not aware of yet, but I'm kind of digging what you're doing. And it's also an interesting thing that a lot of the cast in this movie, even though it's not a big cast, was part of the original cast from the original opening night of the play. Yeah, I heard about that. So the Brewster sisters, Teddy, uh, they were all in the original play. And it was something that John Alexander, who plays Teddy in the movie and in the original play, I guess he just came up with that concept for Teddy. 
Mm. And it was just like, okay, you know, people loved it in the play, so just keep it up in the movie. I, that seems like one of those things where they give you the role of your Teddy Roosevelt. You're the insane, like, brother of Mortimer. And that probably just gives him, as an actor, free reign to be as wild and weird and crazy as he wants. And he does a good Teddy. He does do a good Teddy. Like, honestly, when he came out, I'm like, oh, why is Teddy Roosevelt in this movie? Like, he's not like a dead ringer for Teddy Roosevelt, but he could definitely play him at your birthday party. Oh, yeah. And the fact that we get outfit changes and he's different Teddies from different, and he knows, he's like, I know this hasn't happened yet in history, but soon it will. That That's the other thing. Like, the... the the methodology of his psychosis is so fascinating and it plays into this weird like this weird comedy of it where you're like oh that's so sad he thinks he's teddy roosevelt and they're like well you know when we tried to make him be george washington he didn't want to be anybody and just stayed in his room all day no he uh, hid under the bed for four days yes yes and it's so like weird I mean, did you like just vibing with it? I mean, did you like when Mortimer calls a Happy Dale Sanitarium and he's like, I need to, you know, put my brother in. He's really losing it. And he goes, oh, Teddy Roosevelt. Well, we've got like four of them. What do you consider being Napoleon? We're kind of running low on Napoleons right now. (laughs) They're like, no, no, that's not not possible. But but yeah, so that that's like the house we're we're going to lay our stage at. And right around this time, this is when Mortimer, he returns home, you know says hi to his aunties. Elaine's going across the street because they're neighbors to like mm-hmm. gather her things because they're going to go off to Niagara Falls. Well, across the cemetery. Across, oh, yeah. There, there's a cemetery right outside the window because this is Halloween and it's spooky. And then you've got the Brooklyn Bridge behind them. They really have, you know, a great location that they're living in. Oh, my God. Like that house, even though it's literally next to a cemetery, is probably like a million billion dollars just like being in the heart of Brooklyn. It's uh, beautiful. With sights to the bridge. Oh, yeah. But, um, so, Mortimer returns home, they're gonna, like, celebrate before he leaves to Niagara Falls for his honeymoon, but Mortimer finds something in the window seat. Because he's looking for pages for his new book, and, you know, I don't know where they are, and let me check this window seat, and oh, a body! And we get the Cary Grant double take, Mm -hmm. which is great fun, and this is an interesting thing that comes up throughout the entirety of the movie, is they never show you the bodies. No. You never actually see a dead body in the movie. They talk about it a lot, though. Mm-hmm. And Mortimer, at first, is like, who is that? And he's like, oh, my God, Teddy's finally broke. He finally killed a man. And his aunts are like, oh, no, we, we did that. What? What? Like, did he attack you? Oh, no, he was, you know, just lonely, so we did a service. Well, what do you mean you did a service? Well, well, it's more, you know, Abby. Well, no, I did it because Martha was out. So I had to take care of business before Martha could get home. And this is where we find out that his aunts are straight up serial killers because this is body number 12. I mean, they consider it number 11. At least Abby does because the first guy died of a heart attack. And the rest of them they poisoned with, uh, what is it, uh, Caterberry wine or something? It it was elderberry wine because the tea, you know, it gives off a smell in the tea. But they're like, oh, you know, yeah, we just mix it into the wine. It's, you know, a bit of arsenic, strychnine, and... um, Oh, God, what was the third one? There's a third one. It's another deadly poison. It it doesn't matter. It, it's death juice. Yes, and, you know, they're just giving uh, Mortimer the recipe, and he goes, oh, you know, that, that sounds lovely. Oh, oh yeah, th- that definitely would pack a punch. And then Abby, Aunt Abby goes, yeah, the last guy even had enough time to say that this was delicious, and then he died. <laughs> it's true. 
again, <laughs> it's it's getting into like black comedy because his aunts are delightful. They are like so like nice and happy and ooh, everything's just oh, yeah. wonderful. We, we laid... And they have a body count like John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, they lay down the foundation with, you know, these women are the kindest women. They've lived here their entire lives. They rent rooms to people that, you know, are in need of help. And that's when O'Hara's like, you know, well, aren't they rich? And, you know, they're just trying to make a dime, you know, off of anybody. And uh, you have the other cop where he's like, no, you know, usually they'll feed these people, put a couple bucks in their pocket and send them off, you know, better than they showed up. And we're kind of realizing, well, not everyone. Did you see everybody leave the house? It's it's (laughs) just wild to me how it's like, oh, Okay, it's so, like the movie just keeps escalating into the insanity mm-hmm. as what's going on of okay, so at first it's like screw little screwball comedy like insanity. Okay, that's like pretty fine. That's benign. Okay, Teddy Roosevelt's in this movie. Okay, that's a little wilder. There's 12 bodies in the basement. Oh, okay. That's that's new and it and it's and it's going to keep pitching up as we go along, but now Mortimer is like, "Well, I got to I gotta figure out what to do because he found the he found the body. He doesn't want to be implicated. He has to figure out what to do. He to... also doesn't know about the other eleven. He doesn't know about the other eleven. Well, he he figures it out because his aunts basically just tell him. Yeah. But he's trying to figure out. He's like, well, I could get Teddy committed, and then if I put the blame on him, then well, he's committed. They can't do anything. No my one... aunts will be okay. Yeah, my aunts will be okay. Not. Uh, not denying the fact that he's still going to let two serial killers free, but hey, he's working with what he's got. So now Mortimer has this whole new goal. Instead of going to Niagara Falls for his honeymoon, he has to find a way to commit his brother Teddy by getting a bunch of paper signed. He has to do it with this roundabout way while also trying to keep his aunts from killing more people. Yeah, and he stops. He stops his aunts. He does. Because he it almost happens again. Yes, as he's on the phone yelling at people and and acts and like yelling at Elaine because Elaine's like, "What's going on?" He's like, "Oh, darling, don't worry about it. Just it's fine. Just fine. Go honeymoon. Home. Keep your shirt on, woman. Come on, damn it." Ah, uh, and yeah, this is where the comedy ensues. And right when he's doing this, like he goes to meet the judge and try and sort this out, and we're getting this whole roundabout thing until Jonathan. And the doctor show up. Dr. Einstein, played by Peter Lorre. I, I fucking love when I see him. Were you excited? I was so excited. I didn't realize he was in this movie. Yeah. And I, I love when he shows up because he's slimy and everything. <laughs> and he's ju- he's just great in this movie, honestly. But his brother Jonathan shows up. He we, looks like Boris Karloff. We get a picture of Jonathan, you know, right before he finds the body. Yes. And his reaction to Jonathan's picture is, you know... Like all of us with reactions to our siblings, you know, oh yeah, look at how good he used to look way back in the day. So Jonathan was looking pretty rough, and then we see Jonathan with a brand new face. Yes, uh, Dr. Einstein, uh, Peter Lorre's character, has been um, doing plastic surgery work on Jonathan because they're on the run from the law, and they got a body in the trunk of the car, and they keep making the reference that Oh, Jonathan, you look like somebody I saw in a movie once. What is it? And, and the gag is he's supposed to look like Boris Karloff because I guess Boris Karloff played that character on the stage originally. Yeah, originally and opening night, uh, Boris Karloff played Jonathan and he was also an, inve- an investor in the play. 
Oh, okay. So when the movie came around, Boris Karloff was ready to be Jonathan. He was so excited to play the character. And the other investors in the play didn't let him. They're like, you're an investor. You are also the reason why we have people coming, you know, in droves because they want to see Boris Karloff. Because he was still like a big name in 44. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because his he didn't have like the what is it the the late stage fading stars until like the what the mid sixties, probably. But I mean, he was still doing a lot of work up until his passing. Oh yeah. So it was this thing where the other investors didn't let him be part of the movie. He was absolutely furious about it, but he was also such a kind person that he gave them the, the all clear to not only model the character after him, you know, using the prosthetics and whatever. But also being able to use his name in the movie. Yeah, because I heard what it was wasn't it wasn't so much the investors. I think he was still under contract for like a movie contract with like Universal or somebody. And this was a Warner Brothers picture. It's like the same reason they because they wanted to get um, they wanted to get Karloff for this, but he was still under contract, and that's the same reason they couldn't get Bob Hope because he was under Paramount, and they wouldn't let him come over unless they gave them Bogart, and they and Warner Brothers said fuck off. Yeah, from from what I read, it was more by this time the play had already hit Broadway, mm-hmm. so it was an independent thing. And then because of the popularity, it had moved up to Broadway. So by the time it was on Broadway, the people that were running it were like, "We can't lose you. This is Broadway, and you are a big name actor. You are the reason why people are filling these seats." But it only took them eight weeks to film. See, that's why I think it had to be like a contract dispute because that's the that's the big reason why a lot of these old movies you see like weird actors and certain things and why it's always like bro like like jimmy stewart and humphrey bogart and john wayne are in the same movie dude mm. that's wild because they're all under different contracts yeah. and different studios so like i think it was a thing where he was under contract with somebody else and they wouldn't let him it, the the main consensus is they wouldn't let him yeah that <laughs> whoever it was they would not let him whether do it was it. broadway whether it was hollywood it's probably jack warner that bastard threw a man out of a third story window got away with it i mean they just wouldn't let him and i mean the fact that they let a majority of the cast be in the movie it was like well why wouldn't you just put the play on hiatus for you know the eight weeks well i guess that was a thing was the movie wasn't i think that okay actually i think that's why it didn't get released in 40 like 41 because I think it was a contract thing where they couldn't release the movie until the play finished its run. Because they didn't want the play and the movie conflicting mm-hmm. business-wise. And the play just happened to run on incredibly longer than mm-hmm. they thought it would. Because it became this kind of like cult sensation for like the theater goers. So that might have been it where it was like just kept on going for like so long. Like that might have been why. Yeah. So we could have had this with Boris Karloff in it, which would have been Kino in my eyes. Because you love Karloff and everything. Oh, absolutely. And to have Karloff and um, Cary Grant together in a movie. Perfection. <laughs> but I really like the actor who's playing Jonathan in this. Oh, yeah. He does a really good job. I couldn't. Grant, he's under so many, so much prosthetics. I can't really tell <laughs> if I know him from anything else. Yeah, I, I looked him up and his name is Raymond Ma- uh, Massey. Okay. So it's like he kind of looks like him, but he looks like Karloff, you know, so much because of the makeup and the stitching. Yeah. And also the fact he's he's like head and tol- head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the movie. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, Karloff, yeah, was a tall guy. He wasn't like 
you know, whatever, this guy is like six foot five. Yeah, because, I mean, Karloff, you know, as Frankenstein, had to be in the platforms, which really, you know, made him that much more taller. But, yeah, like, Jonathan shows up, and I am really enjoying this part of the movie because Jonathan shows up, Dr. Einstein's being slimy because Peter Lorre has defined slimy characters <laughs> in movies, and he's like, oh, hello there, aunties. I, I know you've missed me so. He talks like a like a like a noir villain and this is like the closest we get to a horror movie is when they're in the house and they're like yeah turn off the lights so we can you know all go to bed and all like leave the living room so i can get a body in here and hide it that and you know we have the running joke where uh the other aunt what was her name not abby uh martha she comes down the stairs and she goes oh my god that face, that's from the movie when we took the little boy to go see that horror picture, the one that kept me up for nights. Yes, it, they <laughs> and keep just, bringing up that gag over and over oh, again yeah. that he looks like Boris Karloff. And it, it, this again, it's one of the parts of the movie that gets really funny is how how threatening Jonathan is, even though he is like completely ineffectual throughout the entire movie. He's just scary looking. Yeah, I mean, we don't really see him doing anything. I mean, apart from when him and Mortimer finally meet and he, you know, starts revealing, you know, it is him. And he's like, you remember when I used to put um, needles under your finger, your fingernails? Um, I would do this to you. I would do that to you. And I was like, oh, so you are a legit crazy person. Yeah, because what is it? While Jonathan's here, he's like, you know, Mortimer's out getting stuff signed and, you know, comedy's mm-hmm. ensuing. But when he does return, there's like this whole thing going on where... You know, Jonathan's going to, like, uh, kill Elaine because she walked in on them trying to hide the body. and She saw him at the car so she could identify the car and him. And But Mortimer comes in just in the nick of time and he's like, who the hell are you? And he's like, don't you remember me, He, he throws Elaine out of the house. <laughs> because, of course, that's what you're going to do to your fiance. Yeah. Well, and, your wife. Well, your wife. Yeah. And there's this whole, like, escalation of Mortimer now realizes oh jonathan you have a dead body in the house but jonathan doesn't know that there's dead bodies in the basement yet and it's this cat and mouse game Mm -hmm. and it's one of these things where you're kind of concerned like okay is is jonathan gonna gonna just shoot mortimer like drop dead in the middle of this room because there's he could this movie has this the we're up to our necks and bodies in this movie the other thing about this movie is you cannot expect this to go any way because of again teddy roosevelt's in the fucking movie yeah you know we have like the sweet ants and the bodies in the basements this movie is not setting you up for any predictable outcome this is like it's a screwball comedy in like certain aspects but like the romantic interest stuff has already been played out so like and even Cary grant is not playing strictly a Cary grant role He's like playing a Cary Grant dialed up to 11. Everything, nothing feels right structurally. So you're like, they could kill Cary Grant in the first 20 minutes. And I I think that would just be the movie. It's just anxiety. You're sitting there, you know, who's going to get caught first? Yeah. And and the other thing is like, you know, Cary Grant disappears from the movie for like 30 minutes while he's off getting stuff signed. But the ensemble cast is so strong that it's like. You don't even notice. No, because there's just so much going on. I mean, I love when he finally comes back and he's confronted with Jonathan. And, you know, right off the bat, he's like, what is that? It talks? And it was just like, again, you know, banter you would have with your siblings, you know, just to kind of get under their skin. But it was just, it's funny that he's so 
caught off guard by it. And, you know, well, what the hell is that? And like, your brother. And it's like, that's not my brother. You're like, my brother's upstairs. The one that looks like Teddy Roosevelt. No, this is your other brother. The evil one. Like, oh. Oh, oh of course, of course. <laughs> but then it becomes this cat and mouse game where Mortimer knows that there's a body in the um, window seat because mm-hmm. that's where Jonathan hid his body. Mm-hmm. And then Jonathan realizes, oh, there's a body in the basement because that's where the ants hid that body. So now they're – and then Detective because you O'Hara know Doctor shows up. Because Dr. Einstein went down to the, the canal yes. to help Teddy, you know, dig the, the latest yellow fever patient. Exactly. So now he knows that there's more dead bodies in the house. <laughs> so that's where they get the leverage for Jonathan. And this – and also uh, Detective O'Hara shows up just to, like, say goodnight to everybody because he's going off the beat. And now there's, like, this thing like, okay – if you jump, then I jump, and then we're mm-hmm. both in the hole. And also, O'Hara being, you know, like everyone in Hollywood, like, hey, Mortimer, you're a drama critic. I got a script for you. You, you might be interested in it. You wonder if I throw some pitches at you? And Mortimer's like, uh, God damn it. Fucking every every fucking cashier has a script here in this town. Yeah, absolutely, Detective O'Hara. Meet you down at Kelly's bar in 10 minutes. And... Then Mortimer now, like, backed in a corner, has to find a new avenue to, like, okay, he has to, like, get the bodies figured out. He has to, like, get Jonathan out of the house, but he's also still kind of committed to, like, okay, if I get Teddy committed, Mm -hmm. we can blame it on him. They can't, like, prosecute him because he'll be in an asylum. Yeah. So everyone can get off Mm scot-free because Teddy has no idea what the fuck's going on. No. So he goes back to doing that and... This and then things just again escalate and escalate mm-hmm. and escalate. Jonathan and the doctor are like now plotting to kill Mortimer so they can just take over the aunt's house because they're like, You've been killing how many people here and not getting caught? You got a you you got a good setup here. Now they want to take over and Mortimer finally gets enough paperwork written up. He manages to make things right with Elaine and just in time he is in just in time when he's about to commit Teddy. This is when Jonathan captures him in the house. Yeah. And he's going to hold him hostage. And then he's, or he's holding him hostage because he's going to kill him the long way. The long way, yeah. Not the short way. Just like in Melbourne. Yes. And Jonathan, er, and Mortimer's tied up. And you have Dr. Einstein that's pleading, you know, please, Jonathan, not the long way, please. Because I, I, I think Dr. Einstein isn't as evil as Jonathan is. No, no. he. It definitely feels like Jonathan is the murderer and Einstein is the henchman, the unwilling henchman. Mm-hmm. And, That's why he has to be constantly drunk whenever he's helping. And I love, and I love how Peter Laurie is playing this character because, again, I've seen Peter Laurie in like a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen him in, you know, Maltese Falcon. We've seen him in Casablanca. Yeah. I've seen him in M. He's he is a great, great actor he at is. playing these, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, Rick. I don't, I don't really understand. He just mm-hmm. exudes this slime ball feeling, <laughs> but you have this instant sympathy because you're like, God dang you, rat bastard! Like <laughs> maybe you could get one out on this one. And I mean, I love when you know he's finally drunk enough. And he's admitting, he's like, yeah, you know, before I fixed your face, I was at the theater and I was watching this movie starring Boris Karloff. And then, you know, I just rolled with it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it is so good. Like, honestly, he's, he is a, a patented scene stealer, mm-hmm. steals every scene he's in. And he's so good in this ensemble. 
But just before Jonathan is going to kill Mortimer, this is when O'Hara shows back up. Being like, why'd you stand me up, Mortimer? Huh? Huh? <laughs> you know, I thought you wanted to hear my play idea. Not real, not really, you know, mentioning the fact that Mortimer is literally bound and gagged in the middle of the living room. Because, you know, he's got to get his pitch out before, yeah, you know, he unties him. And then Jonathan tries to, like, kill the O'Hara, but then more cops show up and a huge brawl ensues. Because, you know, Jonathan finally, you know, we hit the, we finally break the straw, the last straw. When O'Hara's like, who are you trying to be, Boris Karloff? And then he was like, no, I- I've had it enough tonight. He's been he's been called out one too many times. Jonathan tries to kill O'Hara. There's this. I loved the the knockdown dragout brawl because Mortimer manages to get free, and he's like, and he, he's so exhausted. He's like, I'm gonna jump in and like help. Uh, uh, no, nah, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, he just sits on the stairs because we don't really see the brawl. We see the shadows on the wall, <laughs> and we see Mortimer just sitting on the stairs. He's talking to himself. He's lighting up a cigarette, and he's just like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And someone will get thrown thrown against the banister, and he's like. No, no, not right now. You know, like, I need a break. And then he's like, you know what? I do need a phone call. And then you have Jonathan, you know, ready to throw the phone at the police. And he's like, can you lift it a little bit higher so I could, you know, dial the number? It's a thing where Mortimer is so exhausted by everything that's been going on. He's just like, I'm done. This is the curse of the Brewsters. Mm-hmm. We're all insane. We're crazy. We're all crazy. We're, we're all these, these, you know, evil monsters. Crazy doesn't run through his family. It gallops. It does. It does. And... The the brawl finally settles, like the dust settles, and, you know, the uh, paperwork's all written up to send Teddy off and be committed, and they have, you know, the, the men in white coats to come to take him away, and then Mortimer gets another idea. Well, we could send my aunts away, too. Well, before we, you know, jump to that, they realize that Teddy signed his papers, Teddy Roosevelt. Not Teddy Brewster. Yes, your favorite gag in the movie. So they have to, you know, go through that, you know, trying to get him to realize, you know, hey, you need to sign your actual last name, but you're really signing this because it's an anagram because, you know, they're spies now and Jonathan is a spy. So you got to, you know, sign this documentation. And that's when we get there's 13 bodies in the basement. Oh, yeah. And you've got the chief of police that's there now because Teddy again blew his bugle. And that was the reason why, you know, the the. The steps were being made to get him um, in the asylum because he kept constantly blowing the bugle, scaring the neighbors. And the neighbors were just like, you know what? We've had too much of this. You've got the cops as friends. But at this rate, we need Teddy out of here. And it, and that's the thing. Like, that's the opportunity for Mortimer to be like, all right, if I can get everyone committed, even if they find the bodies, no one's going to prison, mm-hmm. but they're just going to be locked up in the asylum forever yeah. where they probably rightfully belong. Yeah. And his aunts are like, well, we don't want Teddy to go. We'll just go with him. And Mortimer's like, absolutely, you mm-hmm. should do that. As he's trying to convince the chief police, there's not 13 bodies down there. They're just crazy. Mm-hmm. All right? They're whack jobs. And the chief police is like, oh, okay, I see what you're throwing down there, laddie. Yeah, well, they're definitely whack jobs. Well, chief of police didn't have an Irish accent. but It does in my head, damn it. But, you know, now we've got our supporting cast. We've got Jonathan. We have Elaine that are like, there's bodies. I've seen them. You know, you want to go see them, and you have, you know, more deputies that are ready to go down there. But Mortimer's like, I got to pull, you know, people away from that basement. You know, he starts blowing the bugle, running up the stairs, you know. 
you want bodies? We've got bodies in the basement. We've got bodies everywhere. My bodies are better up here than the ones downstairs. He starts acting this over-the-top crazy to try and... Like, he's trying to do it so he can get, like, everyone else to get to get the idea that, look, my aunts are insane. I'm just playing along with the gag. Mm-hmm. If you play along, like, there's no body in the basement. Just play along with the mm-hmm. gag. Two varying successes. But he finally was able to, like, get everything worked out en- enough, you know. Um, so when everything settles, his aunts are going to the asylum. Same with Teddy. Jonathan's arrested. Dr. Einstein escapes, and um, also, I love that bit, by the way, where they're like, oh, yeah, his accomplice, and and Einstein is just about to leave, and then the cops show up, and he's like, and he's like oh, shit, and he's like standing there as they're doing the descriptions. Yeah, about five foot four, 140 pounds, speaks with a German accent. 50? About 50, greasy black hair. All right, we'll see if we got him. Hey, Doc. He's like, yes? If you see somebody like that, let us know. He's like, oh, I will, and he just walks mm-hmm. out the door. It's, again, great little gag. I love it. But it finally ends with his aunts revealing to Mortimer that he was adopted and he's not actually a Brewster. He's the son of a sea cook. And he's so excited. He grabs Elaine and says, none of this is my problem, honey. And they fly <laughs> off to Niagara Falls. Over a barrel. Ah, And that's arsenic and old lace. But, again, like... Explaining this movie does not do it justice. It just gives a very broad idea of kind of the humor and how dark this movie is going. Yeah. And how kind of light the comedy is. Because, again, the movie, in some aspects, looks like a horror movie. It looks like something straight out of um, Frankenstein or Dracula. uh, Especially when they're going up the stairs and you have the light coming in through the windows and it's full fucking noir. Or when they completely turn out the lights in the house, and then we have Teddy come out of the basement, and you just have that beautiful white glowing light coming out of the basement, surrounded by the the dark house. And you just barely see expressions of his shadow as Mm -hmm. he's moving through, and you're like, he has a body on his shoulders, but you can't tell what's going on. You see the feet of the the body going down the staircase. You get get this beautiful sound design where you can, like, almost see what's going on, even though you're staring at basically a black screen. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, like, the filmmaking on display here is, like, really, really good. Like, that's the thing. Like, Capra was a lot of things. He was a great fucking filmmaker. And the whole thing about the movie that I think hits me so well is it has this kind of perfect control of its tone. Because, again, it's going between what should be a pitch black horror movie to this screwball style bonkers comedy and you don't get the weird rub in between it's so smooth it is so like cleanly laid out everything just feels like it flows into the next thing you don't question why the you know why oh there's 13 bodies in the basement oh well why don't they tell the cops oh why is teddy roosevelt in this movie why is frankenstein showing up all of a sudden you don't question these things because the movie sets up the vibes and tone so well there's no gore there's no blood oh god no i mean okay there's no gore there's no blood i am still amazed this got past any censors in 1944 yeah and i mean the majority of the the censor issues was just the you know, quote-unquote sexual frustration of this couple wanting to leave for their honeymoon. Okay, well... And it's like... There's also, like, the thing where he was like, oh, you know this look, honey? Yes, that look. You better get used to that look. Because that's... Yeah. The context is like, this look right here, 
This is the look you're going to get right before you get boned. Yeah. Because we go into the bone zone. Yeah. So it's like, but that's just one scene. And it's, you know, not even like, you know, them eager because they want to get to their honeymoon. It's just, we have to make this train in the next hour. But we're, you know, well into the hours of the night of this happening. I, I love how the cab driver is just waiting outside and Mortimer just keeps running around and he's like, hey, are we ever going to leave to Niagara Falls? Okay, I guess I'll keep waiting out no, here. No, I just like that he's like, hey, you know, you're at $22 now at this rate, you know, the cab's yours. And then, you know, an hour later, okay, you own like two cabs now. And it's just like, wow, 22 bucks. That's not bad. It's fucking 44. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that works out. But. Again, it's a thing where the movie the movie definitely has like, you know, um definitely it's got some good sex vibes going on, sex jokes going on. Yeah. Because the whole like dynamic between Mortimer and Elaine in the beginning of the movie is definitely they are real into each other. Oh and yeah. And it's not like subtle about it at all. And like it's the whole thing where not only that, but the whole premise of the movie being about murders and covering up a murders and insane people and like at the end of the movie one of the villains gets away yeah like like a dr einstein just walks out of the movie like scot-free and it's like the Hayes code had all these rules and restrictions in this movie comes out in 44 yeah but it was made in 41 under that code how did how did this dodge so many bullets it just did and then you know the critical reception to it was Everyone loved it. Yeah. I know it also made a shit ton of money oh, yeah. for the time. Oh, yeah. It made a ton of money. So it was kind of cool to see, you know, wow, you know, it was critically acclaimed. It made a lot in the box office. So it wasn't one of these ones where I was like, people didn't get it for the time. Like, oh, no, people got it. Yeah. Which that happens a lot with um, movies we talk about on this podcast where, oh, yeah, this is a classic 1930s or 40s, whatever. And uh, some of the critics didn't really get it. The audience didn't show up for it, but it's like a well-remembered like cult classic mm-hmm. or, oh, this was like the director's best movie in their opinion. It just didn't make any money. Yeah. Like that's what happened when uh, we talked about The Thing, right? Yeah. You know, John Carpenter's like, this is my best movie. And at the time, no one liked it. It took what, like 10, 20 years? Uh, probably closer to 20. I think, I think around like the early 2000s when the internet kicked in, that's when everyone kind of came to consensus mm-hmm. that, Okay, it's not one of his good movies. It's not one of his great movies. It's his best movie. Yeah. With Arsenic and Old Lace, I'm just amazed that out of the gate, this movie that is all over the place, that is honestly like a precursor to the fucking Adams family, mm-hmm. is this kind of really dark black humor just kind of works. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, this is like, this is perfect. This is a great big crowd pleaser. Uh, it totally goes against all of the Capra um aesthetics and mannerisms and it and it's like yeah it's it's perfect it's great and i'm i'm just again astounded by this yeah you know it's one of those movies uh, i can't think of the phrase where you know it's a really great movie but not a lot of people know about it um i think i you know what i'm talking about <laughs> a great movie that i mean there's cult classic but this movie is like well critically acclaimed and made a lot of money so yeah that's probably not a cult classic but i know what you mean like yeah you know these movies where it's like they should be you know be loved by so many but it's just not too many people know about it people know about the stage play which was new information to me that that was something in your high school and high schools that they do still act this out Oh, all across, like all across like the world, like people do this play 
constantly because, you know, it's a play that has a lot of parts. Like, mm-hmm. in a lot of, like, plays, you know, oh, Romeo and Juliet, there's, like, there's Romeo, there's Juliet, there's Capulets, Montagues, whatever. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of high schools, you're like, well, there's, like, 15, 20 kids in, like, the theater club, maybe. Yeah. And this has, like, 13 parts mm-hmm. in it. So it's like, oh, you can actually, like, do a nice big play. Everyone gets speaking lines. Everyone gets to do stuff. Oh, yeah, that's really good for that. It's also a thing where it's a little, like, raunchier mm-hmm. without being, like, gross about it. So you can actually, like, oh, I'm a 16-year-old and I get to be, like, doing spooky stuff and also, like, throwing in the the old, like, wink-wink, nudge-nudge mm-hmm. kind of gags. It, it's a really good play for that. And the movie just kind of works perfectly as an adaptation of that kind of play. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's one of those things. I'm just like again. I'm just astounded by like how much I like this movie. And and honestly, it's this is probably way more popular than we're giving it credit for. This is probably if you were listing off like the five best Capra movies, this is probably in there somewhere. Oh yeah, but you know now that we're probably ten best Capra movies. We made a lot of good fucking movies. Yeah, but now that we're in October, and you know this is the time where people are really you know ramping up. We're gonna watch the spooky movies all month long. You know, this isn't one that I hear a lot of people talking about. Yeah. I mean, like, on Facebook, I'm, like, you know, in groups for, like, you know, pre-coded silent film eras, you know, movies from the 50s, the 40s. And, you know, there, you know, every now and then I'll see something, you know, featured about Arsenic and Old Lace. But it's, like, other other places, no. I don't really see people talking about it. Well, it's this goes into a thing that I think is interesting. There's not a lot of halloween movies there's mm-hmm. a lot of horror movies yeah but most people when they're watching movies around halloween you're watching like scream uh friday halloween. 13th Halloween, yeah john carpenter's halloween you know friday, friday 13th nightmare on elm street you're watching like slasher movies or you're watching like the exorcist or amityville horror or the omen you're watching horror movies yeah this is a movie a, like a halloween movie that's a that's a comedy First and foremost, that's just kind of macabre. And that's like in a really weird kind of genre. Because that also exists with something like Hocus Pocus, mm-hmm. which is... It takes place on Halloween. It takes place on Halloween, but it is like a family-friendly kind of like comedy with a macabre comedy. That's more like Hocus Pocus yeah. is. This it takes up the same kind of place as something like The Munsters or like Adam's Family would take up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more the thing, because I think most people during the spooky season, they're watching, like, horror movies. This is in a different genre than, like, those kind of Halloween movies. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I think is fascinating. Oh, yeah. But I absolutely love this movie. Um, If you guys are able to find a DVD copy, if it's just randomly out on a streaming service, I highly recommend you give it a watch, because it's a good time. I wasn't sure how you were going to feel about it, but I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed it. You didn't take it too seriously. You just kind of went with the flow of, well, what's going to happen next? Well, like, I usually take movies like this. Look, I only give movies like that kind of um, downtick where I'm like, I can't take this seriously. When it doesn't set up its identity well for me. Like, this sets up exactly what it is from, like, moment one. We are an absurdist, macabre comedy. This is what we're doing and I totally just vibe with it. It it really worked. I mean, I gave this a five stars on Letterboxd, so five really? out of five. 
Oh yeah, wow. this this movie. Well, this movie just kind of worked for me. I I think it's my favorite Cary Grant performance. I I like it more than him in Bringing Up Baby, which everyone has anointed as. Oh, this is the star making performance. I fucking can't stand Bringing Up Baby. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like the first 15 minutes of Bringing Up Baby is a slog. The rest of the movie get it gets progressively better after the first 15 minutes, but the first 15 is rough. Him and the awful truth is really good but it's that's the duo between him and irene dunn that really kills that movie for me and even then i'm like i kind of like irene dunn better in this than (laughs) carrie grant and then like north by northwest is like oh it's him doing the james bond shtick and i'm like yeah but he's also like almost 60 in this so it's kind of again like ah, i'm not really getting the the vibes here this though like is pitch perfect for me for like a carrie grant performance i think this is another one of those all right, put this up in the echelon of Peter Lore performances I think are wonderful. It's super funny. It's super spooky. It definitely works as a perfect Halloween film. If you've got people who are into the Halloween season mm. and they don't want to watch, you know, Friday the 13th Part 37, Bloodbath, and Elm Street, this is probably a much better watch for those people. But yeah, would highly recommend. Give it a watch. Great movie. But what are we watching next week? Well, before I announce what we're watching next week, I do have a boo fact. You have one boo fact. I have one boo fact. So at the time of this movie, the Brewster house was the largest set ever built on the Warner Brothers property. Really? Mm-hmm. Because they built it as the house. Oh, okay. Oh, that yeah, that makes sense. So it's a whole. I assume it was it's a, a whole exterior interior. It right? was a completed house, room by room, every detail, and even down to um, the things that we didn't get to see: the study, the aunt's bedrooms, the cellar. Those were all completed. Oh, that sounds like such a waste of money. And it was used, I think, in another movie not too long after this one released. Mm-hmm. But it was a thing where the house was run down, so they had to, like, basically destroy the interior of the house, made it, make it look like, you know, it had been abandoned for years. But at the time, yeah, this was the biggest set to ever be built. And it was a functional set. I think that's such a waste of money because we, we see one static shot inside the basement that could be anywhere. And I don't think we ever see the inside of the kitchen. We're in the kitchen twice. Okay. But we, we never see the study, right? It's just kind of in the background. No, we never see the labor- laboratory. The attic. We never uh, see anyone's bedroom. We don't go into the bedrooms. Uh, we don't even go into Elaine's house. We just go right up to the front door and up to her window. Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. That sounds like Warner Brothers like, we need to embezzle some money. All right, just build like some sets and it'll be fine. You know, we'll make the numbers disappear later. <laughs> that's okay that's but, that's kind of a fun one All but right. i thought you might like that since you know we did tour the property this year yeah we did um i'm not sure if this was on the studio proper or if this was at the ranch that they just recently tore down oh but, god i don't know because if they had to do the exteriors it's probably at like it was probably at the ranch yeah and that's what i'm thinking because that's probably the best way that you can build the cemetery well, and the backdrop the, the, and everything the best way that you can make it feel like you know this is happening you know inside and outside but then again this could have happened right there on the back lot and you know it's in one of the bigger studios there yeah but yeah that is my boo fact of arsenic and old lace and next week we're going to be talking about a movie that is near and dear to my heart it's up there with arsenic and old lace it might be a little bit more up there because this has been with me for 
my entire life. We are talking about Young Frankenstein. Ah, going back to a Mel Brooks classic. Ugh, we It feels so right. We talked about this movie a little bit when we did Blazing Saddles yeah. uh, earlier this year. Because Blazing Saddles Young Frankenstein came out the exact same year. Which is mind-blowing. Yeah, and, this, and those two movies basically gave Mel Brooks a blank check for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. And... Th- it is wild because those two movies, like I think Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles were both like in the top five highest grossing movies of that year. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Young Frankenstein is like everyone says like Blazing Saddles, that's his consensus best movie because of how like forward thinking and how much it pushed the boundaries of blah, blah, blah. But I think a lot of people have like that, like a lot of love for Young Frankenstein. Oh, I'm in the camp that Young Frankenstein is his best film. I mean, Blazing Saddles is right behind because it is just so innovative and groundbreaking and right in your face. But this movie, I mean, this this is an art piece. I'm I'm very interested to see how we how I feel about it because I like when we talked about Blazing Saddles, I hadn't I haven't seen Young Frankenstein in years. Oh no, I I watch this. You watch it every month or on repeat every couple every year because that is how you watch movie. You don't like watch a movie. You integrate a movie into your life like people integrate a workout routine. You're like, I mean, ah. is, is there anything wrong with that? Oh, no. I just think it's a funny, like, tick about how you enjoy movies. But, yeah. So, I'm excited to watch Young Frankenstein. I haven't seen it in forever. I'd be in, I'm very interested, interested to see how that compares with Blazing Saddles, how much of the homage of that in the original Frankenstein and Bride play in. And just to get into a good like horror comedy, because man, they don't make a lot of the a lot of good ones anymore. No, they don't. I mean, it's, like you were saying earlier, it's a lot of horror movies. Mm. But where you could blend in comedy and horror and get it to work right, I mean that that's really hard to do now. Yes, except but... for Hocus Pocus, because that's a masterpiece too. <laughs> that movie came out in like ninety nine or ninety one. No, no, it came out in ninety three, so it's celebrating its thirtieth anniversary this month. Yeah, so you can't really say, oh yeah, this new movie Hocus Pocus really integrating. Well, yeah. I mean, compared to you know the movie we're talking about today that was from forty four, and then Young Frankenstein that came out in the seventies. You know, yeah, it's fairly you know newer. Hocus can... Pocus is old enough to drink and be concerned about his mortgage. Yeah. Okay, so where can they go to hear us talk about, not Hocus Pocus, Young Frankenstein? Uh, If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. You can go there and like, comment, subscribe to see the nice video slideshow versions of this podcast. Eventually, Dean will get off his ass and upload more of those for your enjoyment. But if you wanted to know what else we're doing or what we're getting up to, you can go to our social media at... You can follow us on the Film Club Podcast Instagram, where we post our daily stories, upcoming episodes, and random adventures we go on. And with that... Charge! Have a good week, everybody. Charge!